Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Hi, Cash. Hi, Casey. Hi. How are you all doing tonight? (laughs) Nice to see you. Thank you for coming out. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about Your Face Belongs to Us, which is a book that I would describe as as a book that I I found myself wanting to throw while I was reading it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It it the the sort of uh the, it, when when you read it you experience this kind of creeping dread and then the dread tips over into a kind of fury at the panopticon we're building for ourselves. That- I mean I hear that about a lot of my writing in general. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is it is it's excellent and I'm so glad you wrote it because from the most moment that you broke the news around Clearview, it was clear that we just needed to learn a lot more about what was going on. So for for those folks who may not have uh, read up on Clearview AI just yet, tell us in a thumbnail, what is it? Yeah. So I think of this book as kind of a high story about Clearview AI, how they made off with billions of faces from the internet, probably including your own, um, how they did it, and whether they're going to get away with it. Uh, and this is a company, um, uh, the rare New York tech company. Uh, founders decided to, yeah, just collect billions of, of faces from the web, from social media sites like LinkedIn, Venmo, Facebook, and build a facial recognition app that could, you can take a photo of somebody, like it would take a photo of you, and it would pull up other places on the internet where your face had appeared. They weren't sure exactly what they were going to do with what they built, but they ended up selling it to police departments and police agencies. And it was being used by thousands of police officers when I first heard about it. And it was all kind of secret and no one realized it was happening. Yeah. And today it it continues to be used by police departments is that right yes there are still many police departments using it um originally it was being tested by um police officers around the world but after people found out about the existence of clearview ai there were regulators in outside of the us like in europe in canada in australia that investigated clearview ai and basically kind of kicked them uh, kick the company out of their country. So they're mostly just operating in the U.S. at this point. They have contracts with the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and then, yeah, just lots of local police departments. It's like a classic case of American exceptionalism. <laughs> the- we love our tech here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you spent a lot of time, probably more time with than any other journalist with the founder of Clearview, uh, Juan Tontat. Tell us about what sort of person he is. Where did he come from and how did he find his way into the face scraping business? Yeah, so Juan Tat grew up in Australia. He was kind of one of those classic kids, tech founders who just love technology from an early age, kind of tinkering around with the computer that his his dad brought home from work at three or four years old. taught himself to code uh, with uh, like free MIT videos that were posted online in high school and college, got very into hacker news and was not very excited about computer science classes in college. So actually ended up dropping out at 19 years old and moving from Canberra to San Francisco. This is about 2007, um, Naval Ravikant, um, uh, who went on to found Angels List? They had like met through through Y Combinator, and he just said, "Hey, you should come to San Francisco. Tech is booming here." And so, moved to San Francisco. Was creating kind of Facebook quizzes and games when uh, Facebook first opened its platform to third party developers. Started making iPhone games when the iPhone was getting big. Was just kind of like chasing the latest tech trend. And when he lived in San Francisco, he actually kind of fell in with a liberal crowd. He let his hair grow long, played guitar, hung out with musicians and artists, but ended up around 2015, 2016, falling in with a more conservative crowd. He would later tell me that he was radicalized by the internet. He moved to New York, and that's when Clearview AI started, what became Clearview AI started coming together. When you say he was radicalized by the internet, what do you mean? 
So, you know, he doesn't love talking about this period of his life, but just kind of was on Twitter. He started following people who worked for Breitbart, you know, kind of retweeting Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, he met a guy named Charles Johnson or Chuck Johnson, who, uh, if you're in the media world, you definitely know who he is, kind of a conservative provocateur. Uh, yeah, he, when you see it, like his name in print, it's usually um, like uh, accompanied by the words uh, like tr- troll, notorious troll. Yeah, 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 definitely internet troll, liked, liked uh, needling liberals. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, started going around New York and I would talk to friends of his and they thought it was a joke at first because he would wear these like big white like furry coats with a MAGA hat and would go to parties and this wasn't a really popular thing to be doing in kind of Manhattan and Brooklyn and they thought it was ironic but he was very seriously into Trump and the the kind of ideas for Clearview AI really gestated um, as I write about in the book at the Republican National Convention when Trump was being kind of crowned um, the candidate for the Republican Party. And, and, and that's wanted, where they met Peter, Peter Thiel. Right. Who, who winds up funding, be, being one of the investors in the company. And I want to talk about the, like, the political ideology that gets baked into this thing from the beginning. Um, but one of the things that you write about is the long history of people believing that they can look at your face and tell whether you are a criminal or just sort of learn other things about you. Can you just kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of that and talk about how those ideas wound up getting bandied about by Chuck Johnson and Juan as they were thinking about starting a company together? Yeah, I mean, when they were first planning this startup that they wanted to do together, um, and uh, Charles Johnson also brought in a, a guy named Richard Schwartz, who was older, who had, who was kind of a New York politico, had worked with Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor of New York. And they just had these emails that they were passing around. And through my reporting on the book, I got to read a lot of these emails. And they were just like, it, it was very much a kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And their original idea, idea wasn't a facial recognition app. It was an app that you could take a photo of a stranger and kind of learn more about them based on their facial features. And originally they were thinking about um, whether you could tell from someone's face and their features, whether they might be a criminal, um, you know, whether how intelligent they are, uh, whether they might be a drug abuser. I mean, really kind of radical ideas going back to like phrenology and physiognomy in the Victorian age. And they talked about doing this with modern computers. Um, and so one of the ideas that they bandied about was this was right around the time that Ashley Madison was breached, the extramarital dating site. And all of a sudden we knew the millions of users of Ashley Madison um, because their names and, and addresses had been leaked. And so Juan said, oh, you know what we could do? We could find all of those people on Facebook, download their photos, and then train this AI uh, to recognize what a cheating face looks like. I mean, just really wild ideas about what was possible with AI. Yeah. Um, and, and from there, they sort of get the idea that, that maybe they can use this technology to find something even more disturbing than a cheater, which is a liberal. Right? <laughs> yes, there is definitely a desire here in the early days to kind of uh, kind of sort political enemy from political friend. And one of the first deployments of the background check um, tool that they ended up creating was at the Deplorable, um, which was this event around the inauguration of Trump. Raise your hand if you went. (laughs) I see no hands. Uh, (laughs) And it was for, you know, people who helped get Trump elected. And it was very celebratory that finally we had this very unusual candidate coming into office. And they're very worried about infiltration by anti-fascist, Antifa, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, And so Smart Checker, which was the name that Clearview AI had before it became Clearview AI, claimed that they were used as a deplorable, and this was confirmed to me by somebody involved um, in the event. 
And they said that they basically were able to identify people that were affiliated with the anti-fascist movement and make sure they couldn't get into the deplorable. I talked to one of them for the book. She didn't realize that this had been done. And um, the company actually used this as a successful use case when they were pitching their technology to Hungary uh, as a border security tool. And they said, hey, you can use this to make sure that people that come into your country, you can identify them in advance. And they said, you know, we fine tune the software so that it will be able to recognize people that are affiliated with George Soros and the Open Societies Foundation. And it was, you know, I think disturbing that kind of the initial use case for this kind of technology was, let's make sure we can identify people who might want to be trying to spread human rights in your country. Right. But also so telling that the first customer for what would eventually become Clearview is this authoritarian right-wing government that's trying to, um, you know, eliminate that kind of liberalism. Right. And as far as I can tell, they did not end up taking them up on on the offer. But Interesting. But I mean, there's something else really important in the story you just told too, though, which is like, is as for as absurd as this whole thing sounds on its face, the technology did, even in its earliest stage, successfully catch someone who had been on their watch list, right? Yeah. 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 Like it, it works. And I think it's something that I wanted people to understand with this book coming out is for so long, facial recognition technology has been very flawed. And I mean, for decades, even as it's been used and deployed, it just didn't work that well. Um, but in the last decade, it's gotten very powerful and it is possible. And we're seeing it happen that you can identify a person in a crowd very easily. Madison Square Garden, for example, in New York now uses kind of facial recognition technology in this way to identify not just security threats, but enemies of the owner, namely lawyers who work at firms that have sued Madison Square Garden. I didn't even realize Madison Square Garden had enemies until you wrote that story. <laughs> James yeah. Dolan, I mean, uh, clearly you don't live in New York. I don't. Uh, James Dolan kind of famously um, has enemies. Anybody who uh, kind of disparages his ownership of the Knicks, people who show up at the stadium and have kind of uh, signs that say sell the team will get kicked out of the stadium. And um, yeah, so anyway, so does not like does not like getting sued and you know he is the owner of the sphere which just opened up in las vegas it's all over tiktok and kind of like every social media platform because it's this kind of incredible um uh New entertainment space. venue yeah yeah like if we were in the sphere right now there just would be like crazy digital i asked to do this over. in the sphere and they said <laughs> that we didn't have the budget <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to get in. I might be on the ban list. Um, <laughs> but people have been sending me uh, photos of signs inside the sphere that say facial, facial recognition is employed here. And so I'm just kind of like waiting to hear about the lawyer who is frustrated that they can't go in and see, you know, you two uh, perform there. Yeah. Um, well, I, I do want to take some time to talk about how this technology has evolved because I think one reason why there isn't more um, uh, public debate about this, more controversy, is that this does feel like a frog slowly boiling scenario, right? Where we've read stories for 20 years about this stuff mostly being kind of bad and overhyped. And one of the, the moments of overhype that you write about in the book was uh, what came to be known as the Snooper Bowl. Uh, tell us what the Snooper Bowl was. So the the Snooper Bowl was the 2001 Super Bowl in Tampa, Florida. Um, it was the first time that facial recognition technology was kind of deployed on a large crowd. And the 70,000 people who bought tickets to the Super Bowl that year did not realize it was happening. Um, it was, a I think, the day after the event, the technology companies that were involved put out a press release and they said, oh, yay, like nothing bad happened at the Super Bowl. And you have us to thank. We were working in partnership with the Tampa police to identify, you know, um, uh, criminals, wanted criminals. Uh, I think it was basically like ticket scalpers. Mm. Um, but they claimed. The biggest threat. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> But they claim that it had worked, that they identified people. Those claims kind of fell apart later. Um, but yeah, this was the first 
time in the U.S. Uh, that we knew about that facial recognition had been deployed this way, and it set off a big debate. Um, people were very upset about the idea of being this crowd, kind of being scanned, having it happen, happening secretly. Um, the ACLU kind of came out very strongly against the normalization of this. Uh, one of the big things they raised is, does this technology really work? Um, and it was really a bipartisan issue. Dick Armey, very conservative politician, actually put out a joint press release with the ACLU saying this can't happen. Um, you know, we need to have rules around this. I talked to one of the facial recognition vendors from that time and he said, yeah, I thought we were going to be put out of business because of how how upset people were about the use of this technology this way. Right. And then a few months later, 9-11 happens. How did 9-11 wind up changing attitudes and creating an opening for things like Clearview AI to come into being? So this is this constant tension we have when we're talking about these new invasive technologies between privacy and security. And so that fa same facial recognition vendor told me, yeah, then 9-11 happened and the conversation completely changed and it wasn't so much how do we keep this from being deployed? It was, it was how do we deploy this everywhere to keep us safe? He said he started getting calls from you know, shopping malls back in the day when uh, those were a popular place to go. Uh, schools, you know, airports, everybody wanted to roll out facial recognition technology on um, kind of uh, spaces where you might have some kind of threat, some kind of attack. And, and it happened, you know, they started piloting it in airports. The state department started using it to scan um, visa applicants. I mean, it, it started being rolled out in DMVs to prevent um, like identity fraud. And what's troubling to me is that it really just didn't worked that well back then. One of the vendors told me that they started doing a pilot project in South Africa and they had to pull out of it because the technology just wasn't working on people who had darker skin. Um, and so, so that keeps happening again and again, I think, where we have this big scare about the technology, about the threat it poses, and then there's some security event that kind of causes us to, to pull back or accept it. Right. And at the same time that that whole conversation is going on, the technology d keeps getting sort of incrementally better. And it seems like it was the arrival of neural networks that really sort of brought us into the moment that we're in today. So maybe without going all the way into what a neural network is, what would you say about the kind of the milestones that um, create the conditions for something like a, a Clearview AI to come along? Yeah, I mean, um, combination of a lot of data in, in the case of, and this is kind of happening with, with so many different technologies in computer vision, it's kind of having a lot of photos and images for computers to crunch with, with tools like ChatGBT. It's just a lot of text, a lot of language. Um, but with facial recognition technology, it was having all the faces on the internet combined with um, you know more powerful computers and, and these new kind of machine learning methods. And so one of the, um, people that I focus on in the book was an engineer at Facebook. And when there was one of these first neural network breakthroughs, he around computer vision and computers being able to identify objects in photos, he said, wow, we could do this with faces. And he had all the data he needed to train a computer to see faces because he worked at Facebook. And they had you know, lots of users who had tagged themselves in all kinds of photos, you know, um, tagged themselves in, in their friends in dark rooms, uh, in blurry photos where they're looking up, they're looking down, they're looking sideways. And so with all of that, you know, labeled data, they were really able to make just a huge advance in facial recognition. And all of a sudden, like in the last five years, um, I guess now, last 10 years, uh, since I've been working on the book for a few years, <clears throat> you know, the computers have gotten just very good at being able to figure out when a face belongs to the same person in all these, all these different photos. Yeah. And uh, Facebook winds up not releasing this technology in the way that you might have expected for reasons that maybe we'll get to. But other folks do start putting these, uh, these training data sets together. They start putting them on the internet. They start making them open source. You have a, a story in the book about one of these training sets called OpenFace. 
um, which is just a bunch of faces that you could uh, create something like Clearview AI with. And I was laughing as I was rereading your book because on GitHub, there was a note um, in OpenFace that said, please use responsibly. Um, and then it winds up becoming a foundational part of what became Clearview AI. So let's sort of fast forward through the, the story now to when Clearview AI actually gets up and running. I want to talk about where they got some of these images. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it's so funny. I do want you to tell the story of the absolute privacy menace that is the Venmo social feed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you kind of sped through it, but... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> you, you, you can slow down. That's just where I want to go. Um, I mean, something that has happened mm. around technology and artificial intelligence is for so long, the big tech companies kind of controlled the direction that this was going. And so something that I found out working on the book is that Google and Facebook both really developed a Clearview AI-like technology internally, where, yes, you were able to kind of take a photo of a stranger and put a name to that face or, or find other images of that person. And those technology companies decided ultimately to hold it back. Like they felt it was too risky to put out there. Um, but now that we have open sourcing of the technology, which basically means the kind of algorithms to do this um, are trained on, uh, you know, powerful computers. And then the output is now more made more available and accessible. You can have radical actors like Clearview AI, which is just a really small company with just a few people create a very powerful tool. And so I do think we're going to see that happen more and more often with generative AI and other types of AI. It won't be just controlled by large actors who are subject to a lot of scrutiny. It's like the elephant and the mouse problem where we're focused on how the elephants are using the technology. But now there's all these little mice running around with really um, powerful, <laughs> powerful tools. Um, but yes, yeah, so Venmo. So when uh, so one of Clearview AI's big advantages is that they built this huge database of images. There's now 30 billion faces in their database, and it's growing all the time. And so I asked Huantan Tat, who's one of the the technical co-founder, like, how did you get these faces? Like, what is the actual mechanism for 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 downloading it all? And so he described one of the first places, um, kind of his first big kill as a face hunter. And it was Venmo.com. And it's interesting because there had been privacy advocates who had expressed concern about Venmo's privacy consent model, which is when you sign up for Venmo, everything was just public di by default. Um, as soon as you started, it's a social payments platform where you kind of publicly announce, I paid this person for this thing. And privacy advocates said, you should really make this private by default. Like these are kind of sensitive interactions. In general, it's not great to just like encourage people to broadcast everything onto the internet, but Venmo did not do that. And on Venmo.com, they would actually show in real time transactions that were happening on their network. Um, like Casey paid Cashmere, Cashmere paid Radiance. It would all just flow through in real time. And so Juan Tantat developed this tool that just hit you know, the Venmo.com, it's just an automated scraper, hit the website every few seconds and whatever transactions were there at that moment, he would just download the photos and the URL to the profile um, pages. And it was one of his big sources. He collected, you know, like millions of faces from Venmo this way. Uh, and so the early kind of prototype of Smart Checker slash Clearview AI was you take a photo of somebody and it takes you to their Venmo page. Right. All of which is to say, if you have not set your Venmo transactions to private, make sure you do that right after tonight's event. Um, In general, I do think it's just a good idea to make your accounts private by default. And I think this is hard in today's society because there's such a... a uh, tension right now, kind of a conflict. Like, do I go super public? Do I want to be an influencer? Do I want to like make public TikToks and put it out there and kind of, uh, you know, gather this big following for myself? Or do I want to be private and make sure that my face isn't scraped, make sure that, uh, you know, some AI company isn't collecting the information I'm putting out there and having it used in some way. Uh, and so, 
yeah, I think for individuals, for parents, like I think about this a lot with posting photos of my children, um, just whether we should really be trying to protect our information from the kind of public comments of the internet because it's increasingly becoming a feeding ground for AI companies. Yeah, it, it can all be weaponized and used against you in ways that maybe haven't even been invented yet, right? I mean, like, there's probably things you're doing on the internet now that will be of great use to someone down the road, and it's you know probably something that is covered under their uh, or Sephora brand. or Sephora send you free makeup. Yeah, and so yeah. Wait, will that happen? <laughs> I mean, I think if you become like a TikTok influencer, oh, yeah. you get all these brand deals. Uh, sure. So I mean, it is a it's yeah. a trade off. Like which which version of the internet do you want to choose for yourself yourself? Right. I think, you know, I mean, I, you know, I make media and, but, but, uh, but what I observe about people who become like really, really popular and famous um, is that like basically no one can withstand scrutiny over a long enough time horizon, right? Everybody steps in it. A lot of people wind up losing their whole livelihoods, which leads me to believe like, if you don't have to be super public about what you're doing, like you're probably just better off being more private. But that's, that's an individual choice people have to make. The thing that I'm thinking about just now is you're making me wonder if, well, so, okay, let's take a step back. So why didn't Google, let's say, lean full on into this? Well, Google had a lot of privacy scandals back in the day, right? Eric Schmidt used to talk about the creepy line, and they tried to keep everything they did on the right side of the creepy line. But then they roll out Google Maps. It becomes a huge scandal in Germany. Just the idea of taking a picture of someone's house and making it address searchable was a huge scandal that sort of took them years to recover from there. For Facebook, just the idea of introducing a newsfeed, you know, just showing you updates that your friends had made and putting those in a list for you, um, that was a huge scandal for them and made them feel like they might lose the company. So they had a lot of scar tissue around doing stuff like this. And you could understand why doing face search would have just been like a nuclear bomb if they had done that. At the same time, I wonder if it isn't a tragedy that they didn't try. Hmm. Because had they done that, the resulting backlash might have actually gotten us the national privacy law that we still have never gotten. <laughs> so I just wonder what you think might have happened. It, it, like in the alternate future where they had pursued that, will we maybe be better off? I mean, I, I still think a national privacy law could happen. You know, yeah. Clearview AI may be um, what helps push us in that direction. I mean, I don't think that uh, Facebook now Meta has given up on the dream of mm. kind of releasing some kind of face search mm. product. I, I, uh, you know, they are still talking about it. Andrew Bosworth, the CTO of Facebook, um, said a couple years back in 2021 that you know they're working on the augmented reality glasses, uh, which could potentially have AI in them to be able to kind of process what you're seeing in real time. And he has said he would love to put facial recognition capabilities in those glasses. Um, and there was this private meeting where um, an internal meeting that got recorded. Uh, and one of the employees asked, you know, well, if we did that, you know, what would that look like? Would people be able to opt out of having their face searched? And he said, you know, we're still debating this. Society is debating this. We're not sure if it would be if it would be legal because there are places like Illinois that have laws around you're not supposed to process people's face prints without consent. And he's like, but I think this would be great. You know, you could go to a cocktail party wearing our glasses. And when you see that person that you have met five times and you should definitely know their name, you know, our glasses could tell you who they are. That would be really great. We could put a little name tag on everybody. And, you know, since then, Facebook has decided they turned off their kind of automated photo tagging on Facebook. They deleted the billion face prints that they had created for their users. But everyone I talked to there says, you know, we're still we still talk about this. You know, at any point we could turn our algorithm back on and recreate these face prints. And I do think there is a possible future in which Facebook does release these augmented reality glasses and maybe it's finally the smart glasses that people actually will not be embarrassed to wear. Uh, and you could, I could imagine a world in which we have kind of privacy settings for our face in the way that we have privacy settings right now for our Facebook profiles, mm -hmm. where, you know, with your Facebook profile, you can decide, do I want it to be public where everyone sees it? Or do I want just my friends to see it or my friends of friends? I could imagine Facebook 
trying that out in the real world where you say, okay, you're Casey Newton. People know who you are. You're public about who you are. You just say, anybody can look at my face and it will supply my name and kind of who I am and information about me. Um, But maybe someone else here is a bit more private. And so they say, you know, no, I don't want my face to be recognized. Do not supply information about me. And then there's people in between who say, oh yeah, it's fine if I'm connected with them, you know, on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Yes, give my name. Like I could imagine a world in which it's a consent model for, yeah, how how public your face is. So let's assume that 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 model exists and that in this future, everyone is wearing glasses. So you walk into the cocktail party and if you consent, people can know that that's who you are. Just by show of hands, how many people would like at least be remotely comfortable with opting into a system like that so people would remember your name without having to ask you? All right. So I'm going to say 20%-ish, maybe 15%. I think 25 to 30%. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm famously (laughs) not a math major. Um, But uh, a minority, at least it seems, in this room. Um, I want to talk about the way that this technology gets used by... That's good news for Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I do think that, yes, as soon as the social norms change around this, they will be the first to, to... go through that door and I am sympathetic honestly one of my biggest like failings as a reporter is I am terrible with faces Mm. and when whenever you forget someone's face they always take it personally Mm -hmm. and that lingers with them for years Mm -hmm. um and the problem with being a reporter is that you're constantly meeting someone one time for 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and that for me that's just not enough time to remember their face um and that said, I still basically don't think we should go down this road. I think there's there's too many uh, problems associated with it. <laughs> I think the problem will be, so if we did have that consent model for face recognition, what if you do decide to opt out? And then kind of what stigma becomes attached to, I'm a person who wants my face to be private? Yeah. Because this is such a... Uh, theme around privacy, this kind of like, well, you know, if you're, if there's nothing, if there's, you, you have nothing to hide, you know, um, if you're a person, what, what is the phrase? Like, uh, if you haven't done anything bad, you don't have anything to hide. So I can imagine this world in which, um, but again, th- but you I mark your face that private. That is the logic like, of authoritarian well, states. Like, I mean, like, that's like, that's a horrible world to live in, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think this is definitely the way we want it to go. And I think the downside would be that there would be kind of a stigma attached to choosing to be private in the same way that like when you meet somebody and you Google them and there's nothing, it's like, why is there no, why is there nothing here? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I be of, I'm like of two minds. Like one, I usually feel like I'm being like catfished in some way, <laughs> you know, like it's weird when somebody doesn't have a digital footprint, but also I'm kind of like, well, that's like hot, you know, it's like, if you're, it, <laughs> You know, as somebody who is essentially just constantly performing for other people for money, it's hot when someone is not doing that, you know? It's like, oh, here's a person with self-worth, you know? Privacy is a luxury good. Privacy oh. is hot. Privacy I is like hot. It. Privacy <laughs> is hot. Um, I, would, I would get merch to that. Uh, <laughs> that said that. Um, yeah, one of the things interesting about this is that while uh, Juan and his friends are building this nightmare, the government, which which has a vested interest in being able to just, you know, point a scanner at people and uh, know who they are, has not been building this. You, you write in your book that um, the FBI, when you were writing about this, had only 36 million faces um, at their disposal, while Clearview had a billion by the end of 2018, and you just said that now they have a lot more. So why was the government slow to act here? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I, I definitely track this in the book. And I think the government knows that facial recognition technology makes people uncomfortable. And so when the FBI was first building a, um, a kind of national database of faces, they said, we're only going to put criminals in it um, because we're all comfortable with criminals not having any privacy. <laughs> uh, and so at first, the databases that the government were using were just mugshots. Uh, and I, there was this one congressional hearing where there was a sheriff from, I think, Alabama. And he said, you know, we're not interested in normal people. We're just talking about criminal faces. 
And a few years later, all of a sudden, the state databases are starting to include driver's license photos uh, from normal people. And so you see this kind of creep happening. But nothing like what Clearview AI did, uh, you know, just scraping the internet of everybody's photos. I mean, including children. There's children in the Clearview AI database, um, which is, I've, I've heard from child crime investigators, is very useful. They really like Clearview AI because they can sometimes identify unknown victims. Um, but I think that, you know, if, Clear, if the government had done what Clearview AI had done, people would be really upset. Like, it would kind of... Um, violate our sense of what's a reasonable search and seizure. Uh, I think it would be too massive a database and there would be a big blowback. And this is something I hear a lot from privacy activists and privacy advocates that we're increasingly seeing a kind of privatized surveillance state where you have companies like Clearview AI that do something that would be unconstitutional um, or face a lot of blowback if the government built it. Um, same thing with a lot of location vendors that are kind of collecting information about your movements from your smartphones, creating these databases where you can kind of see where somebody has been for the last 30 days, three months, six months, and um, are, are increasingly selling that information to the government. And yeah, it allows uh, them to kind of circumvent uh, activities that would usually require a warrant or judicial scrutiny. Uh, and it is, it is, it is uncomfortable uh, that these kind of huge databases are being created that are just, they're not getting the same kind of public scrutiny uh, kind of sense of, is this legal? Because they're just selling it. Absolutely. And if you're, if you're listening at home, this is the, the portion of the conversation where I started drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> um, I don't honestly understand why something that would be considered an unreasonable search and seizure, if the police were doing it of their own accord, magically becomes okay because they paid Wonton Tat to do it. Do, do, uh, what? Like, how? Oh, gosh. Uh, so you're asking me to tap into the legal scholar that I'm not. Um, I mean, uh, kind of gets complicated, but, but basically kind of the way that privacy works in the United States is if, if I know something about, you know, a criminal activity, I can just kind of volunteer it. Um, but if the government wants to get it, they need to get a warrant to get that information. And so it, it, it and this has come up in Supreme Court rulings. Um, Sonia Sotomayor has talked about this, that she's uncomfortable with what's called the third party consent doctrine um, and would like to see kind of more constitutional protections created around this private data because there's so much that's happening now. Um, it's so easy to gather information about us, whether it's kind of satellites that are overhead that are just like looking down on cities uh, to location tracking to, yeah, our faces. I think technology is just getting so good at tracking us that we really do have to create kind of a, a regulatory framework or legal legal protections or kind of privacy as we know it, our ability to be anonymous is going to disappear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the there's like, there's sort of two en enabling things necessary for Clearview AI to spring up. One is the, the technological piece, although as you point out, lots of people invented this, right? In a way, there is nothing special technologically about Clearview AI. They, you know, they, they yes, they, they might have done a, a clever thing here or there, but this was not, you know, someone inventing, you know, cold fusion in their garage. Um, the, the real enabling factor here was shamelessness. They were just, they were, they did not have the sense of shame that Silicon Valley companies had. They did not have the sense of shame that the government had. They just plunged ahead and because they had the technology, it was we don't have any national privacy law. They're they're still operating today. Right. It was a. I've said it so many times, but it was an ethical breakthrough as opposed to a technological breakthrough. Yeah, ethical breakthrough is not what I would describe it as. <laughs> um, maybe an ethical breakdown. Um, you know, you sort of alluded to this earlier as well, but uh, even today there are false positives, and I believe that in in every false positive that we know about to date, the victim has been black. Is that right? Yeah, there's a handful of um, 
of mistaken arrests that have resulted from facial recognition technology searches. I think it's six right now. In every case, it uh, has been a person who's black, uh, mostly men. There was one woman that I reported on recently. She was eight months pregnant in Detroit and got arrested for um, uh, robbery and carjacking. Uh, the, the crime had occurred the month before by a person who was not visibly pregnant, and yet she still spent a day in jail. She was charged. She had to hire a lawyer. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this can go really wrong if um, people kind of trust the technology too much. Um, and, and I think there is a big question about... Uh, I mean, I have talked to many police officers for whom... Facial recognition technology has been a powerful tool and has helped them, you know, solve horrendous crimes. And they really value this technology. Um, that said, as a society, I think we need to ask questions about, you know, when are we comfortable with it being used? Are we okay with it being used for every crime from shoplifting to murder? Um, and then, you know, how big should the search be? Um, if, uh, and this kind of, this happened, if uh, essentially a shoplifting crime happens in New Orleans, should police be turning to a database of 30 billion faces to find that person? Uh, and if they do, I mean, things can go wrong. We don't, we aren't all super unique individuals. Sometimes we look like other people. This happened in New Orleans and police turned to Clearview AI. And one of the hits was a man who lived in Georgia. And when police went to his Facebook profile, they saw he had a lot of friends in New Orleans. And so they thought he must be the responsible person. So they sent a warrant for his arrest to authorities in Georgia uh, with a request for extradition. So he got picked up while he was driving to his mom's house the day after Thanksgiving and ended up spending a week in jail waiting for the authorities to extradite him. Meanwhile, he's never been to Louisiana before. He said, I'm not the person you're looking for. And so, you know, this, this technology can be powerful, but if it's not kind of used responsibly paired with responsible investigations, um, you can have it go really wrong for people. And it tends to go wrong for as we've seen in the past for black people because of over-policing. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that is really something we need to be debating as a society right now the, the thing when I, we use this and how. Yeah. The thing I always want to know when the police officers talk about, oh, you know, we were able to have this breakthrough. It's like, well, what else did you try? You know, like I understand that if you can just sort of mash your, your fist on a, on a keyboard three times and you get a face, that's like very exciting for you. But if it comes at the cost of like the privacy of the entire country, that doesn't seem like a, gr a great trade off to me. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I went down for the book to Miami and spent some time in the real time crime center there, which is kind of the nerve center of their department. There's real time crime centers uh, at a lot of different um, police departments around the country. Uh, but yeah, they had, you know, they're using Clearview AI. They've got license plate scanners. They've got shot spotter, which kind of sends an alert every time it detects what it thinks is a gunshot. And I was talking to the investigative chief there, Armando Aguilar, who really believes in this technology and thinks it's very important to policing um, but wants it to be used responsibly. And he kind of told me, yeah, I feel like my officers are getting a little too dependent on technology and they think they can solve crimes sitting at their desk. And I want them to get out there and be interviewing people and, you know, using more. So it was just interesting because I was like, oh, this is like all of us. We're like, get it. we're all like, oh, I just use my phone too much. Uh, <laughs> but I think it is a danger when you become too reliant on the technology and and yeah trust every lead that's coming in that way because we can be misled by these things they're not always perfect surveillance tools that's right um i want to talk about the one ma uh, magical oasis of privacy that exists in our country which is uh, a magical land called illinois <laughs> can you talk about the privacy benefits of living in illinois yeah <laughs> mm. 
So Illinois is one of the few states um, that has a very relevant law when it comes to facial recognition technology. And they passed a law in 2008 called the Biometric Information Privacy Act, kind of passed through a fluke of history, um, honestly, which I detail in the book. Uh, but there was a company called uh, Pay by Touch, which was um, uh, trying to get people to give their fingerprints uh, in order to make uh, to make purchases in grocery stores. And a lawyer in Illinois kind of became aware of it. Uh, he worked for the ACLU. He was a little disturbed about this company collecting people's fingerprints. Uh, the company ended up, it was based here in Silicon Valley. The founder was a little erratic, had some drug issues, offered cocaine to a board member, uh, had domestic violence history. The company went bankrupt. And so the lawyer in ACLU at the ACLU said, wow, this company might, you know, sell off everybody's fingerprints to make a buck when they're in bankruptcy. And so as a result of this, Illinois passed this really prescient law. And it says that if you want to use the biometric, um, a biometric identifier from a face print to a fingerprint to a voice print for a person who lives in Illinois, and you're a company, you need to get their consent or pay up to $5,000. And this has really kind of protected the faces of people who live in Illinois. Um, and so the greatest example of this is that, so I talked about it earlier, Madison Square Garden decided to use facial recognition technology to enforce this ban on lawyers. And it means that if you're a lawyer who works for one of these companies, you like can't go see the Knicks at the Ma at Madison Square Garden. You can't go see... Which, which previously was thought to be a human right. Right. <laughs> you can't see a comedian, you know, you can't go to a concert at Beacon Theater, you can't see the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall. But if you want to go to Chicago, where Madison Square Garden owns a theater, um, you can get in there because they're not allowed to use facial recognition technology this way unless they get consent first. So laws like this really do affect how the technology gets used. And so it's one of the reasons why I want to write this book right now, because I still think that we are in, the pla in a place where we can make decisions about you know, the existence of this technology for us, how ubiquitous, ubiquitous it is, like which, you know, databases our photos are in, but it does require uh, kind of like regulatory framework. And so I think it's really important for us to be thinking about this right now. Uh, uh, amen to that. Um, I'm, I'm interested as we sort of start thinking into the future about how even the same state that wants to expand this security apparatus is already finding itself being thwarted by the very apparatus that it's building. You write, for example, about the fact that uh, CIA assets around the world are now getting killed because of the existence of these systems. So can you explain a little bit about like, I mean, maybe it's just obvious what's happening, but... I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the fact that uh, spycraft is now very difficult because of this sort of thing. Yeah, this was surprising. To, uh, I mean, ironic, I guess, yeah. uh, would be the <clears throat> word because part of the book is going back and figuring out, like, how did we get to this point in facial recognition technology? What are the forces that kind of created this? And it really started... Uh, in Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley. Uh, engineers who were here were funded by the CAA to, in the early 1960s to like start trying to get a very early computer to recognize faces. And while I was working on this book, um, uh, now in the modern world, the CIA sent out a warning to its agents around the world and said, hey, our informants are getting killed at an alarming rate. They're being identified because of new AI tools, including facial recognition technology. And we are starting to see some places where, um, you know, we are seeing facial recognition deployed in real time on surveillance cameras. And so if you know who the CIA agents are, you can kind of put a flag on their face. And when they meet somebody, you know, at what used to be a dive bar uh, in a place that used to be unobserved, you're able to make these connections about who they're meeting with, who might be providing them information. And, and I think this is the kind of fear around this kind of tracking technology um, is if we start seeing it deployed kind of all the time um, on all the surveillance cameras, it would mean that you can't 
really move through space and assume you are anonymous and kind of have privacy in the things that you are doing day to day in public. Um, so yeah, so already the government is kind of um, worried about how this could come back to bite them outside of the U.S. where things have really progressed uh, faster than here when it comes to facial recognition technology. Yeah, I mean, just as an aside, I've been watching the show Slow Horses on Apple TV+. Plus. Have you seen this one? No, I haven't. It's like, it's a spy drama. It's very fun. I'm enjoying it. But, you know, as things happen in London, and I won't spoil it, but as things happen, uh, everyone, all of the spies are like, we'll just pull up the CCTV mm-hmm. and they can just sort of immediately, you know, track people's faces all across the city. I realize it's fiction, but my understanding right. of the sort of CCTV situation in London is that it is extensive and they basically can find you anywhere. Well, one thing that is kind of privacy protective is that all of these CCTV cameras were installed two decades ago when the cameras were pretty bad and the footage is pretty grainy and they put everything up high, which is not a great way to get people's faces. You want it to be at eye level with them, which is how China installed the cameras um, because they put cameras in later than the rest of us. And so um, in London, where they are starting to deploy facial recognition technology um, uh, kind of faster than us, they're not doing it on the cameras yet. They put facial recognition cameras on top of mobile vans and kind of drive them to a crowded location. And then we'll scan the crowd for people who are wanted and just kind of arrest them off the street. Uh, And yeah, so right now we're kind of protected by the old infrastructure. And I do think that gives us time to decide what we want this to look like basically before they put in the new shiny cameras. Um, and the, the cameras are getting cheaper. It's getting easier to do this. So again, I do think we need to really assess this right now uh, before it's too late and it's just already out there and we're getting tracked all the time. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned China. I think the the single most dystopian thing in your entire book, at least in the sense of what dark future do I think we actually probably will just be living in um, soon, is the concept of the red list. Can you mm. tell us about the red list? Yeah, so so China is one of the places that has moved um, uh, kind of into the future faster than we have when it comes to facial recognition technology, and it is pretty widely deployed there. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but when the, there were the protesters in Hong Kong, a lot of them said that they were being, uh, you know, they were being identified and people, the officers were coming to their homes after the protest, giving them tickets. And so a lot of them started climbing the kind of camera poles and like breaking the cameras or painting over them. Um, yeah. In, in China, Facial recognition technology is used to kind of automatically give people tickets for jaywalking. Um, It's been used to name and publicly shame people who wear pajamas in public. Uh, Yeah, I mean, has used, have been used to suppress dissent, Um, uh, human rights abuses, you know, monitoring the Uyghur Muslim population there. Um, but there are some, you know, people who are alarmed by, by the kind of, uh, ubiquity of facial recognition technology. And that's the people in power who realize that they too can be tracked. And so now China has red list. And if you are a person in power who doesn't want to be seen by the camera, you can be put on this, this list where you are exempt. And so you are, you are invisible to the cameras that are tracking everybody else. And it is true. I mean, what we were talking about earlier, it's privacy as a luxury good. Some people get exempted out of being tracked. And I actually heard that about some of the investors in Clearview AI. Um, one person told me that um, she was talking to an investor and they said the reason that they invested in Clearview AI is they want to make sure that they could get their face and the faces of their friends taken out of the database. <laughs> Although I, I don't know if this is true, but like in the days of phone books, I believe it did cost more to not be in the phone book than to be in the phone Yeah, book. you had to pay to be taken yeah. out, right? I think yeah. that's what I recall They're from sort my, of always my youth. <laughs> but it just seems to me, it's like, well, you know, if you're building a massive surveillance apparatus and then like as soon as it's built, the first thing you need, need to do is to like remove yourself from the apparatus so that it doesn't like crush you and your family. Like maybe just don't build the giant surveillance apparatus, you know, um, unless you plan on using it as a tool of oppression, which like from the start of this company it has been what it was about right is um is selling it to hungary anyway um it's been a fun evening no um <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get to some of your questions here in a minute but um i guess maybe the last question i had for you before we, we, we get to read your questions something i'm sincerely curious about is like 
you know, you clearly learned so much over the course of writing your book. I just wonder if there were any particular ways where your your views on all of this change or like how did your thinking about the world we're building evolved as you learned more and wrote your book? I mean, I do think, you know, I, I hear a lot um, from people who are building these technologies, like the cat is out of the bag. You can't uninvent the tech. We just kind of need to accept the world now um, that technology has brought to us. And there are downsides, but you'll get used to it. And working on this book and kind of going back and um, kind of looking at the ways that we've constrained technology in the past, you know, the law in Illinois, I do think it is very possible to decide what we want technology to look like, how we want it to be deployed. One of my favorite examples came from Jay Stanley at the ACLU, and he said, you know, this we've been in this place in the past um, uh, uh, during a time in the United States when small recording devices were becoming, uh, were getting manufactured and were ubiquitous. And I think we, we um, uh, most often encounter this in the tapes from the White House during the Nixon administration where there are all these people who were just kind of secretly taped talking about all kinds of federal crimes and you know society freaked out and congress passed the wiretapping act and uh jay said you know this is the reason why the millions of surveillance cameras that are all over the united states only record our images and don't record our conversations you know we can create zones of privacy but it requires acting and passing laws and creating regulation and not just letting kind of the technology lead us to where it wants to go. Um, so I guess that is for me, it was really the hopeful lesson of the book. Like, I don't think we just need to resign ourselves to living in this world in which we just no longer have anonymity or privacy. Right. Uh, I'm in the meantime, I'm looking for a place in Chicago uh, just to kind of hide out. Um, <laughs> let's turn to your questions. Uh, this person wants to know if a person only used an avatar instead of a photo, would that mitigate the chance of your image being used for facial recognition? So potentially, um, uh, one experience. So I was, I tested the technology. I wanted to show, um, Casey what it's like, and we didn't talk about it, but so Clearview AI is limited to the police and they have like a bigger database, I think, than any other facial recognition company has, but there's also a public face search engine that anybody can use, um, uh, with a subscription called PimEyes. And I ran a PimEyes search on Casey. And one of the results for a photo of him was a generative AI, um, kind of sketch of him. And so if you're using an avatar, like make sure it's from a video game and not kind of like a gen AI version of your face. Cause it might still be a hit. I think that what is so hard about privacy is that you are not the only one protecting your face, it is um, other people too. So if your employer, you know, has your face on their website, or if somebody has posted a face of, uh, has posted a picture of you kind of publicly online, these are the kinds of things that can come up in a search. So even if you are good about making sure that you're not putting, you know, a photo of yourself on your Facebook account, on your Twitter account, if anyone else has, and it can kind of lead back to you, that is a vector for being identified. So it can can be hard to kind of protect yourself. Um, but if you're in California, uh, you do have, you know, the CCPA here. And if you don't want to be in Clearview AI's database, you can go to their privacy page and access your results and ask for them to be deleted. Uh, so that is something that you can do if you are worried about this. Yeah, as soon as you're done changing your Venmo settings today, I recommend you do actually maybe before you change your Venmo settings. Um, this person wants to know, what effect will face recognition and other AI have on the power imbalance between government and corporations versus individuals and small businesses? What can and should we do to ensure due process and fair opportunity? Um, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of having a conversation, deciding if we want to pass laws or regulations. Um, curious if you have anything specific in mind there. And then, you know, I mean, what, what does the average person do here? Is this a sort of call your congressperson uh, type of thing? Or uh, do you see any other kind of groups of activists out there that are doing anything interesting in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think the big question 
uh, is you know whether we ever get a kind of national privacy law that addresses this or an AI law that talks about ethical data sourcing. Um, and I'm just not sure how that's going to go. It was a little depressing in the book uh, tracing like how long we've been talking about the fact that that facial recognition technology was going to be this powerful and people saying we need to pass a law to protect people and it just didn't happen and didn't happen and didn't happen. And so I don't know if that's a future for AI as well. Um, but yeah, on this, this question of power imbalance, um, yeah, it's so interesting. I've been hearing from government people for so long covering privacy that they feel like the companies are more powerful than them and that they have most of the data uh, and that's so often in law enforcement investigations now they are turning to big tech you know to google to amazon to facebook uh, to cell phone um, providers internet service providers to kind of get the information about people that once the government had um, and so we're seeing that again kind of happening in this facial recognition technology space um, i do wonder about companies. And I, I just don't know how much of a kind of outlier Madison Square Garden is. Um, James Dolan is, you know, he is kind of an unusual billionaire, like has grudges. But I am wondering whether other companies or businesses would do something like this. And I could definitely imagine a world in which uh, companies get upset about getting a bad Google review or a Yelp review. And these things are often tied to people's identities. And what if they start making kind of just ban lists, not just for shoplifters, but for people who have been mean to them online. And if you leave them a bad review, the next time you try to go in, they're like, you are not welcome here. And there really isn't anything to protect you against that. Discrimination laws are are based on... Um, uh, protected characteristics. Yeah, protected classes, your ethnicity, your gender, uh, disabilities, but not your right to exercise your annoyance that your food delivery was late. Um, and so, yeah, I just wonder if we'll start seeing it kind of weaponized in that way. Uh, and I've certainly seen that in the, in the past in other realms, um, where companies do get upset and, and try to control what their rep reputation is online. So, um, I do wonder about that kind of imbalance that may happen where companies are using our faces, not just to kind of target us with, uh, you know, the minority report, uh, style you're running through the mall and there's a Guinness ad flashing up, but yeah, using, trying to, to punish us if they're not, like not happy about what we've written about them or what our political inclinations are or whatever else can kind of be gleaned about us from, from um, our online dossiers. Yeah. I mean, I feel like definitely they will do that. You know, it's like if the tool exists and they can, they will. Um, just a few minutes left. This person wants to know now that the book is out, is there a story or interview that you wish you could have included? Um, you know, books take a long time to come together and I'm sure many uh, developments on this front have already occurred, maybe even since it published. Does anything sort of stand out as a like, oh, wow, if I were writing the afterword today, like I would definitely want to put this in there? Uh, I, I, I really wanted to travel to Russia and to China as part of my reporting for the book. And I was writing this during the pandemic and China was close to outsiders. Um, Russia, I was supposed to go to and I kept trying to get my visa uh, and it just like wasn't coming together and wasn't coming together. And I went to the Russian embassy, a couple of uh, the consulate in, in New York, and they kept like not giving it to me. Uh, and then the war in Ukraine. Ukraine broke out. Uh, <laughs> so I think that may have been the reason. But yeah, I would have loved to have kind of spent more time. And I interviewed, I mean, I interviewed this woman who works for a civil liberties um, uh, um, uh, nonprofit in Russia. And it was just fascinating because in Moscow, they already have deployed facial recognition systems on surveillance cameras around the city. And, you know, they pick up people who are spotted, like they get an alert on their face. It's been a problem for doppelgangers. Um, people who have a bad doppelganger get stopped a lot by police and have to show their ID and say, no, I'm not that person that's wanted. Um, but it almost immediately after the system was created, 
there was a black market um, uh, that sprung up for getting these facial recognition reports. And basically he'd go on Telegram and pay like $200 in Bitcoin and you could get a record of where someone's face had been spotted around town. This woman I interviewed for the book bought her own report. Um, the person she was buying it from didn't realize it was her. She thought she was, you know, a, uh, you know, possessive partner. And yeah, she got this report and it was everywhere that she had been spotted, uh, what the system thought her home was, what the system thought her work was. And so it was really quite kind of chilling, um, chilling deployment of the tech. Yeah, all right. I think we have time for one more. And as I look through your cards, a lot of folks want to know some variation of, can you talk about any resources or companies that can be used to protect our privacy, our information, our photos? As, as you sort of think about what individuals can do here to keep themselves safe. We mentioned you can actually remove your data from Clearview um, through the CCPA, but what else comes to mind? Yeah, so Clearview is limited to police, but there's this other public face search engine called PimEyes. Um, I think PimEyes actually start, stands for Personal Information Management or Manager. Uh, and, you know, this is a, it's a smaller database than Clearview, but it is a site right now where you can go and you are supposed to only upload your own photo. It's supposed to be a mechanism for you to find out what photos are out there of you. Um, I have, subs have a subscription. It's $30 a month that I mostly use to kind of demonstrate to people what this looks like. Uh, and I can do 25 searches a day. And so I don't know why I would need to search my own face 25 times. But, <laughs> but this is a site that you can go to if you're kind of thinking about this. And if you want to see maybe what your footprint looks like, um, you could go and see what your public photos are. Um, sometimes the results are pretty surprising. Uh, uh, with Clearview, at least I've kind of seen myself in the background of other people's photos. Um, but if you want to look and see kind of what's out there and just have a sense of how you might be exposed this way, I think it's something that you can do. Um, and PimEyes does allow you to opt out of results. And so you can ask to have some of those, um, some of those pictures removed. Where I feel kind of uncomfortable recommending using the service is that it's this random company. The person who owns it lives in the country of Georgia. PimEyes is headquartered in the United Arab Emirates, and they have legal services from an outfit in the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> so it's not like the greatest kind of um, uh, corporate uh, infrastructure and definitely presents problems for governance, well, but it is something if you kind of want to see what this is like and have a sense of, yeah, what a search like this looks like, it's something that you can do. Platformer actually has the exact same legal structure as that. So <laughs> I resent the implication. Um, that is unfortunately all the time we have here. I would like to thank Jackson Square Partners, the Ken and Jacqueline Broad Family Fund, and the Commonwealth Club. And if you like this event, and you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club or learn more about more events, you can go to commonwealthclub.org slash events. Um, Kashmir Hill, thank you and congratulations on your wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks, everybody. Your amazing audience. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.